0: JNMP Podcast, an episode on functional improvement after stroke and cognitive impairment in functional neurological disorders. My name is Elizabeth Hayton, the JNMP Podcast Editor with the final podcast for 2018. My first guest is Dr. Aravind Ganesh from Centre of Prevention of Stroke and Dementia, the Nuffield Department of Clinical Neurosciences at the University of Oxford, as well as at the Department of Clinical Neurosciences at the University of Calgary in Canada. And we're going to be discussing his recent paper on late functional improvement after lacuna stroke. So Aravind, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you. Thinking about functional improvement after stroke, how likely is that sort of improvement immediately after stroke? And of course, does the likelihood of recovery reduce as time passes?
1: Well, this has been a very interesting area of uh, stroke research over the past few years. Well, very traditionally what uh, many of us are in fact still taught in medical school is that the the key time frame for uh, meaningful recovery after one has suffered a stroke is in the first three months after stroke. And this is what has led to most stroke trials, for example, using three-month disability as their primary outcome measure. And this is based on very good studies that were done in as fast back as the late 90s, uh, based out of uh, stroke rehabilitation units, where people found that when they were looking at inpatients, most of the strides that they seemed to make were indeed in the first three months. Now, as time has gone on and people have become more interested in different late strategies for post-stroke rehabilitation, like uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation or transcranial direct current stimulation, uh, various late exercise programs, robotic therapies, all these new technologies that are often being deployed mon- several months or sometimes even years after people have suffered their stroke. the the question, An important question that has begun to emerge is how late there is a potential for meaningful recovery for people who have suffered stroke. And this was a question that got us very interested at the Oxford Vascular Study, uh, which is based out of the Center for Prevention of Stroke and Dementia at the University of Oxford. And we were, this, was, this was driven by our own clinical observations with patients where we found that sometimes we'd give people, at least in our own minds, we wouldn't necessarily tell the patients, but we'd, 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 we'd give people perhaps a bit more of a dismal prognosis Uh, at around three months or so based on the recovery that they would made. And then, you know, we'd see them again a year later, and we'd realize that we we were quite wrong about uh, uh, about the the strides that they'd made. And some of them actually seemed to do a lot better. And so so I was seeing this in in my own practice, and I was seeing that I was often wrong about patients that had a specific type of stroke, lacunar stroke, and so that's what got us interested in, in delving into that in a bit more detail and seeing whether there were differences in the capacity for late recovery between different types of stroke and uh, how, how far along the way this potential lasted. And now an important question that you asked was uh, about whether the potential does decline with time. And one of the findings that we made in earlier on in, in examining patients from the Oxford vascular study was that about one in four patients, so about 25% of patients were showing some degree of meaningful functional improvement based on a measure called the modified Rankin scale between three months and one year after they had suffered their stroke. And then if you looked at patients between one year and five years after their stroke, about 10% of them were continuing to show some kind of meaningful recovery. But you could see that there was quite quite a drop in the potential.
0: See, of course, um, your study aimed to turn sort of anecdotal evidence into more empirical evidence with a population study. So, what were your sort of primary findings, particularly thinking about obviously this long-term recovery in different types of strokes?
1: Right. So, what we tried to do with with this uh, particular paper was we 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 looked to examine a bit more systematically, like you said, the degree to which different subtypes of stroke. Uh, differed in their in their capacity for showing this type of late functional improvement and we were most interested in comparing patients with lacunar stroke versus patients that had other types of of ischemic stroke and what we found was that in our population of uh, 1425 3 month survivors the patients with lacunar stroke didn't really differ from the rest of the uh, of, of stroke patients with respect to improvements that they had made at three months. However, if we if we looked at them between three months and one year after they stroke, they seem to be much more likely to demonstrate further improvement. And uh, we aimed to verify these results a couple of different ways in the paper by then restricting our analyses to, to patients that had a three-month MRS of two to four. That's That's a substantial burden of disability, but not so much that they wouldn't, say, be able to participate in rehab on being uh, bedridden, but also not so little that you might, you know, attribute improvements to, uh, to just minor changes in, say, sensory findings or other minor symptoms. And so we, even when we restricted our analysis to these patients, the finding remained robust, and it remained robust when we also excluded patients who had suffered recurrent events, which might uh, change their burden of disability, and we found very similar results when we examined two other measures other than the modified Rankin scale. Uh, these were the bartel index and the rivermead mobility index and so the, the 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 finding basically held up on all these multiple cuts and analyses of the data
0: i mean your findings have sort of real direct implications um, for patient rehabilitation and recovery and even as you mentioned before um, in terms of actual medical training and, and what clinicians are told about sort of functional recovery after stroke so obviously now synthesizing the evidence in your paper what are some real practical ways in which you hope clinicians may optimize late functional improvement
1: right i mean i think the the the, the most important take home point even for those that uh, aren't uh, interested as much in the differences between lacunar and non lacunar strokes is that fundamental point that we did see several patients a good proportion of patients like i mentioned show improvement between 3 months and 1 year post stroke so so i think uh, on a very general basis broadly speaking our findings should encourage clinicians and patients to, to try and optimize this type of late functional improvement in, in, in their regular clinical practice. And of course, the, uh, it, it's heartening that we saw this, this robust finding, especially in patients with lacunar stroke. And it does suggest uh, to some extent that perhaps there is an added rehabilitation potential that may need to be taken into account when, when discussing uh, prognosis and, and rehab options for these types of patients. Now, the other important aspect here, of course, is what patients and their families can take home from this type of research. And I think, the again, for them, the most important take home might be that three months is not the point to necessarily give up hope for uh, improvements in function. Continued participation in rehabilitation may perhaps allow more patients to, to, to demonstrate this type of late improvement. Now, a cautionary note, though, is that our study didn't, wasn't designed to test the impact of these types of interventions, all that we can say is that there's a substantial proportion of patients that will continue to show improvement. Uh, the extent to which that can be modified by different types of therapies is something that, that needs to be studied further.
0: And of course, may actually have implications for the design of clinical trials if they do now currently perhaps even stop at short term recovery. Um, it, may, it may be a future consideration to consider a longer follow up period in these patients and in interventional trials. Is that something that you think might occur?
1: well i mean uh, the one one interesting uh, important aspect to this now i should say this doesn't negate the value of uh, three month functional outcome assessment because that's still to a great extent as as we've demonstrated in prior papers from the oxford vascular study it's a, a to a great extent it is predictive of of long term outcomes be it at one year or five years for most patients speaking on a population level so so that that outcome measure still has uh, you know very uh, robust value uh, and predictive validity, but the interesting implication that our finding has for for trials is, is specifically for for trials of so-called rehabilitative or restorative therapies that are that uh, may often recruit patients who are between three months and one year after their stroke. Right. So what our findings suggest is that studies of restorative therapies can't really assume that functional improvements seen in the first year post stroke are necessarily treatment related right so 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 there's uh, so studies especially that are uh, involving patients with lacuna strokes should be randomized and controlled uh, to ensure that improvement exceeds what is expected from their natural history and the other the other interesting aspect of trial design that that this finding raises is uh, that uh, perhaps such trials should uh, routinely report the, the percentage of, of different stroke subtypes that they're enrolling, and there may be a role for uh, actually ensuring that treatment and control groups are balanced in the representation of lacunar strokes to basically prevent confounding by this uh, apparent uh, greater capacity for late improvement in, 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 in lacunar strokes.
0: Really wide-reaching implications, and really fantastic work from your group. And we thank you for publishing in the JNNP, and, and of course taking the time to speak to me today on the podcast.
1: Well, thank you very much, and uh, we're, we're uh, very glad to have our work featured in the JNNP. And I think for me, this has this has motivated me and uh, many other members of our group to take a keen interest in this uh, in this phenomenon of late recovery and pay closer attention to the important basic and translational neuroscience that's coming out looking at mechanisms of subcortical and white matter recovery, which, which in the end are, are probably going to answer the deeper questions of, of why we're seeing these, these clinical differences.
0: Absolutely, and we definitely look forward to reading more of your work, um, hopefully even in the JNMP. Um, thank you very much for your time, Dr. Ganesh. Thank you. So that was Dr. Aravind Ganesh from the Centre of Prevention of Stroke and Dementia the Nuffield Department of Clinical Neurosciences, University of Oxford, as well as the Department of Clinical Neurosciences at the University of Calgary in Canada. And you, of course, can read his paper on the JNMP website. And thank you very much for joining us. Joined by Dr. Jeremy Isaacs from the Department of Neurology at St. George's Hospital and the Neurosciences Research Centre at St. George's University of London and we're going to be discussing his recent paper in the JNMP looking at a unifying theory for cognitive abnormalities in functional neurological disorders. So Jeremy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I wondered if we could start off by defining exactly what a functional cognitive disorder is um, and particular sort of is it distinct from other more degenerative cognitive conditions, for example, dementia?
2: Yeah. So what we mean by functional cognitive disorder is cognitive symptoms that are not explained by disease or damage in the brain. In other words, they're not underpinned by neuropathology. And that's very different from really any type of dementia because one of the sort of fundamental understandings of the dementias is that that they are neuropathological entities producing clinical symptoms. And the neuropathology may be a degenerative pathology, as you will see in Alzheimer's disease or frontotemporal dementia, or it could be a vascular pathology, uh, as we see in vascular dementia, or a mixture of several pathologies. Uh, And functional cognitive disorder is quite different because it's due to processes that are not underpinned by pathological change in the brain.
0: So following on from that, your paper discusses how functional cognitive disorder could be considered part of the broader spectrum of functional neurological disorders. And is that because of the sort of absence of an underlying pathology or how so?
2: Well, it's, it's got two aspects, really. So by saying that something, uh, clinical syndrome, isn't underpinned by pathology, in a way, that's a negative definition with defining something by what it isn't. And certainly that's also shared with the functional neurological disorders, which are similarly understood as conditions not associated with underlying neuropathology. But I think we also are keen in this field to move towards positive definitions, right, to define syndromes by what they are. And I think there are definitely, there is common ground there between cognition as a domain in which people will have functional symptoms and other neurological domains like movement, control or, control, or, or disorders of consciousness, like seizures, for example. And so if we look at what are the uh, fundamental uh, features of functional neurological disorders as a group, one of the positive ways that we might define them is through the presence of internal and external inconsistencies or incongruities. And so by internal inconsistencies, we mean that that there are inconsistencies within the symptoms that are described. So, for example, in the field of cognition, that might be the fact that people's cognitive symptoms seem to vary a lot. So sometimes they may feel uh, that their cognition is quite good and uh, in a normal, and other times they may feel very disordered. And in fact, in some of the work that we reviewed in the paper, there are groups of people with cognitive fatigue syndrome who perform differently on cognitive testing at different times. So there's that kind of intra-individual variability, uh, and that's an internal inconsistency and then there's another internal inconsistency is for example people who will report their or describe their cognitive difficulties in great detail i say you know i've got a a very poor memory um, but here in great detail is an example of a memory lapse that i had and again that doesn't quite obey the sort of fundamental rules of memory, which is if your memory is not working, you probably ought not to remember your episodes of forgetfulness. So that's, uh, again, an internal inconsistency. Uh, and then the, uh, the external inconsistency uh, is about uh, symptoms that just look very different from those of organic illness. So, in the, for example, in the field of motor disorders, functional movement disorders, if someone may be have paralysis that doesn't obey the known rules of biology. So, for example, the pattern of weakness may be inconsistent with what could be generated by a brain lesion, for example. And in the field of cognition, uh, there are ways in which people with functional cognitive disorder describe symptoms in a way that just could not be consistent with with an underlying brain disease. Now, in fact, our knowledge about how we might analyse the symptoms of people with functional cognitive problems Versus the symptoms of people with neurodegenerative diseases, Alzheimer's disease, for example, that literature is in its infancy, but it is starting to develop. So, if you look, for example, at the work that Marcus Roiver and colleagues have recently published from Sheffield, doing a pilot study looking at a group of people with neurodegenerative disorders, a group of people with people with functional cognitive problems, and recording the interview with a clinician. And then analyzing it using conversational analysis techniques and showing that you can devise a set of variables which or parameters is perhaps a better term, in which you can say if for people uh, the patients describe their symptoms in way X, then that's very consistent with the degenerative disease. if they describe their symptoms in um, manner y, then that's consistent with a functional disorder, and that that showed in their pilot data very a very high sensitive in specificity in terms of separating out predictive way who had what condition so we are starting to construct some criteria which might try to tease out what are the key clinical features of this condition in which in the way in which they are different from the symptoms experienced by people with dementia
0: To that end, I suppose you would need, of course, like an entirely new sort of neuropsychological battery as you're you're talking about, or at least a different way of approaching the differential diagnosis between, say, neurodegeneration and and, and functional disorders.
2: Well, that's a good point, you see, because I'm not sure that we would necessarily need a new neuropsychological battery, because one of the things that comes across from our paper in GenMP is that if you look at uh, this group of people who have what we also think is a functional cognitive disorder which is people living with chronic fatigue syndrome or fibromyalgia or other types of functional neurological disorder actually these individuals do not show consistent deficits on neuropsychological testing, at least not using the uh, the conventional batteries that we would use in in the detection of dementia. Uh, and so, yes, one way of looking at it is saying, well, we we just need to give everyone a neuropsychological test, or we need new neuropsychological tests. But I would tend to the view, and I think this is probably where the Sheffield group are also going, that if we start on the basis that we can ask questions in a certain way and listen to people's symptoms in a certain way, we may never get. To the point in which uh, which we need to have a neuropsychological assessment because we can if we listen to the cardinal features of the condition they will just be there in the way that people describe their their their, their problems and perhaps another way of thinking about that is by anal- analogy to functional movement disorders where the clinical examination in of itself can reveal a syndrome that can't be explained by neuropathology And you wouldn't necessarily send someone with a functional tremor, for example, off for a brain scan. Uh, It's not needed because you can make the diagnosis on clinical grounds.
0: Which brings me to my next question, where your your review really sought to define the key sort of characteristics of illnesses such as fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome and the functional neurological disorders to identify whether there was overlap with the functional cognitive disorders. Were there particular symptoms that were, were shared across the board?
2: So perhaps if you don't mind I'll answer that question in a slightly roundabout way. So what was the motivation in the first place for doing this piece of research? So I'm a cognitive neurologist, I see a lot of people in my cognitive clinic who are coming in with very profoundly upsetting memory symptoms and it's become clear to me over several years of practice that there are a large and increasing number of people coming forward who have a, a non-organic or functional explanation for these very distressing symptoms. But actually the literature, the primary literature on cohorts of people with what we might call functional cognitive disorders rather limited. Um, so there isn't very much for us to go on to start to understand and perhaps say to patients, well look you know this is what we know from large numbers of people with the condition being studied, that data isn't really out there. But, in fact, there are very large numbers of people with cognitive symptoms who have been well studied, and these are cohorts of people with chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia, and to a lesser extent with other types of functional neurological problem and In fact, the uh, literature in chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia is so populated with cognitive studies, uh, and the experience of cognitive distress is so common in these conditions that the cognitive disorder even has its own name in lay language so for example in chronic fatigue syndrome it's called CFS brain fog and in fibromyalgia patients often refer to it as fibro fog so there's a, a very high rate of symptoms and large groups of people have been studied and the motivation behind the, our paper was to say well maybe if we do a big review of all the published neuropsychological studies in people with these conditions we might learn something that's helpful for understanding the group of people the prevalent uh, group of people that we're seeing in the cognitive clinic who just have cognitive symptoms. Now, so the first thing that's clear from the literature that we reviewed is that rates of cognitive symptoms are extremely high in people with CFS, fibromyalgia and other functional neurological disorders. And so the prevalence is at least 50% and in some studies up to 90% of people with these conditions are reporting uh, significant cognitive symptoms. Now, you might ask, well, what's the prevalence in the healthy population? Uh, And we don't definitely know the answer to that, but there is some evidence suggesting that a a significant minority, maybe, let's say, 10 to 20% of people are experiencing cognitive symptoms, uh, functional cognitive symptoms at any one time. So these symptoms are common in the healthy population, but they're super common. Uh, In fact, they may even be the norm in people living with CFS and fibromyalgia and other uh, functional neurological problems. And the sort of symptoms that people might report include forgetfulness, uh, distractibility, word finding difficulties so getting stuck in a bit of a sentence, uh, particularly in situations where that's socially socially embarrassing, like in a work meeting, for example—and then not being able to remember things uh, when you ordinarily think you should have done, uh, and not being able to sort of piece things together properly in your in your in your brain uh, and make sense of stuff. So. Uh, these, would be, these would be fairly standard uh, cognitive symptoms in this co- these cohorts. Uh,
0: well, my next question sort of brings back your original point about, you know, identifying or, or defining these particular illnesses and the cognitive complaints within them by, by positive, um, you know, what's there rather than what isn't there. So your paper sort of raises this really interesting point about the idea that it might actually be the the patient's sort of own interceptive monitoring which may decrease the externally directed attention which therefore of course um, presumably would lead to sort of memory lapses or, or sort of not paying attention enough to sort of encode that memory. Could you expand on that idea? It's a very interesting concept about the sort of mechanism that might underpin these conditions.
2: Certainly, so I guess here we're moving from the things that we found in the systematic review and onto speculation. Uh, about how what 's the cognitive neuropsychology that underpins these observations, I think just to go back a step, one of the uh, more striking things that findings that came through from the systematic review is that if you take people with chronic fatigue syndrome, they generally do badly on tests that are uh, where there's a requirement for uh, sustained uh, attention with a sort of high working memory requirements, like for example the PASA and there is evidence from the other conditions that we looked at fibromyalgia and also uh, the FNDs that again parts of the neuropsychological battery that place a higher um, demand on attentional systems are the tests in which people will do generally do a bit worse than healthy controls Whereas if you look across the board at tests of, say, recall memory, once you control for things like attentional function, mood, etc., actually there's no very good evidence that that people with these conditions have a amnestic disorder, for example, and that's that's quite important in terms of how they're different from people with, you know, diseases of the hippocampus like Alzheimer's disease. Now, then coming to a a model or a hypothesis about well, what's really going on to explain this problem with attention, I think it's first important to say. That, that we're dealing with attention at the, at the higher end of attentional demand. So um, this is not people who would, for example, you know, miss something very obvious. It's, it, it's not that you know, you're in a, in a, in a, in a, in a stuporous state. So I think it's important to say that it's not implying that people are completely inattentive, um, but it's when attention starts to get complicated. And there are two ways in which you can make attention complicated. You can ask for it, you can require it to be sustained for a period of time. And certainly, uh, many aspects of modern life do require quite sustained uh, attention, and yet we are increasingly bombarded with information, which requires us to chop up our, our attention. So, you know, you mentioned earlier on, you know, let's try not to have any emails pinging into the inbox while we're doing the interview, and you know, life is full of those kind of distractions. You know, now increasingly, uh, as we're all sort of super connected with the internet and with each of the, the internet and sort of connecting everyone, and so. Every, everyone's been bombarded the whole time, and that makes it hard to sustain attention, yet it's still important in some situations, particularly say in a work setting, to have sustained attention. And the other way in which attention can get complicated is when it's divided, and in fact multitasking and dealing with two things at once is again an increasing feature of modern life. So we think that if you were to uh, construct a, a, an experimental paradigm, for example, where attention had to be sustained and divided, Then you might be able to tease out one of the core um, cognitive problems that may underpin these symptoms. That's something that we're investigating at the moment. Now, then you are asking, well, why might it be that someone's attention goes wrong? We're getting to another level of speculation here, but we in the fibromyalgia literature, for example. There is a lot of discussion about hypervigilance. There's something called the general hypervigilance hypothesis. It's still quite controversial in that field because I don't think it's completely resolved yet. But the idea is that people are um, attention is drawn internally to pain, to fatigue. Uh, you could imagine in the context of someone with a functional neurological disorder, they may be drawn to feelings of weakness or excessive movement in some part of the body and that this means that there is less attention to go around to be directed externally and then things get missed now again i think we would we would probably take the view that it's only when externally directed attention is ramped up and has to be sustained and divided that you're going to start to see problems it's not that someone would miss something very obvious but uh, again that's still to be teased out uh, experimentally
0: fantastic well thank you so much for joining me on on the jnp podcast today
2: thank you very much for having me and uh it's been the most interesting conversation thank you
0: so that was dr jeremy isaacs from saint george's university and saint george's hospital discussing his recent paper in the jnmp which you can of course download for free from jnmp.bmj.com and for the final jnmp podcast of 2018 um see you all next year